Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hi everyone, it's me, Kevin Gregg, back again to guide you through this week's cases. If you're wondering why I might sound a bit different this week, it's probably just because I've gotten a cold, which has resulted in my voice becoming a bit higher and, weirdly, a lot more pleasing to the ears. Just kidding. I am not, in fact, Kevin A. Gregg. Shocking, I know. As our dear leader stated in last week's episode, he is now on a three-week vacation, during which he will finally be getting married after having to delay the wedding for over a year. We will, of course, miss him, but we wish him and his fiance, actually, his wife by the time this is published, all the best. I personally cannot wait to see what the future has in store for them, and I eagerly await their world domination. Now, while Kevin is away, he has given me control of his precious podcast. My name is Elizabeth Montano, Liz for short, and I am an associate attorney at Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. I am truly passionate about immigration law, and I'm excited to learn with you all over the next three weeks. Thanks for coming on this journey with me, and I apologize in advance for the terrible pronunciation of names that will surely ensue at some point. With that being said, the circuits decided to give me a packed house on my first episode, with eight cases to discuss. We'll start with the pure crimmigration cases, and everyone's favorite categorical approach, then move on to some particular social group cases, and end with the procedural and jurisdictional issues. Let's begin the journey. First up, Simpson v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on August 4th, 2021. This case is about firearms offenses. Mr. Simpson is a longtime lawful permanent resident from the Bahamas. In 2018, and in relevant part, he pled guilty to being a felon in possession of a firearm in violation of Florida Statute Section 790.23, Parents 1, Parents A. For this reason, DHS apparently detained him and charged him as removable for having been convicted of a firearms offense under INA Section 237A2C, which in turn cross-references 18 U.S.C. Section 921A. Both the IJ and the BIA deemed Mr. Simpson removable, but the 11th Circuit reversed. And while INA Section 237A2C is complicated, boiled down, the issue is no different than any other categorical approach analysis. 
do the elements of the state statute of conviction, here, Florida felon in possession of a firearm under Florida statute section 790.23 parens 1a, match the federal offense. For INA section 237A2C analyses, that pretty much means that Florida must criminalize a felon possessing the same or less weapons than those criminalized under federal law at 18 U.S.C. section 921A, which is similar to the analysis that Kevin always discusses with Drugs and the Controlled Substances Act. Here, both the federal government and Florida criminalize a felon possessing a lot of weapons, and the 11th Circuit did recently address a similar issue in Aspelair v. U.S. Attorney General, which was discussed on episode 50 of the podcast. But while Aspelair foreclosed some of Mr. Simpson's arguments, it didn't foreclose all of them. Specifically, the argument that the Florida crime is broader than the federal removability offense because the Florida crime, unlike 18 U.S.C. section 921A, criminalizes the felon possessing ammunition. And indeed it does, which everyone, including the BIA, agrees makes the Florida offense broader than the federal removability offense. As the 11th Circuit explains, quote, ammunition does not constitute a firearm under section 921A3 because ammunition is not a weapon which can expel a projectile, end quote, nor are concealment of, quote, dirks, i.e. daggers, metallic knuckles, and billies, i.e. clubs or truncheons, end quote, covered under federal law, but they are criminalized in Florida. Hmm, noted. It does appear, however, that the BIA found that the modified categorical approach applied because the Florida statute is divisible into two crimes. Defendants can be convicted for possessing the weapons and ammunition, and defendants can be convicted for concealing weapons and ammunition. And it appears that is correct, too. But that does not, however, allow the BIA to simply then review the conviction document carte blanche to determine whether Mr. Simpson possessed a weapon outlined at 18 U.S.C. section 921A, or rather, ammunition. That's because, as Kevin often discusses on the podcast, and contrary to how the BAA appears to have applied the categorical approach as of late, the modified categorical approach only applies if a statute is relevantly divisible, or, as the 11th Circuit put it, quote, general divisibility is not enough. A statute is divisible for purposes of applying the modified categorical approach only if at least one of the categories into which the statute may be divided constitutes, by its elements, the crime defined by federal law, end quote. That means the only question that actually matters is whether the statute is divisible regarding the weapon or ammunition possessed. It isn't, so the modified categorical approach doesn't apply and isn't relevant for purposes of removability. Now, to be fair to the BIA, if the modified categorical approach had applied to this case, then the BIA would have done a correct modified categorical approach analysis. That's because it did find that, quote, section 790.23 parents 1 parents A is divisible with respect to the items that it prohibits felons from possessing or carrying in a concealed manner, end quote. That's because it did first actually do a divisibility analysis by finding that, quote, section 790.23 parents 1 parents A is divisible with respect to the items that it prohibits felons from possessing or carrying in a concealed manner, end quote. It was just wrong, according to the 11th Circuit. It never needed to do a modified categorical approach. That's because the Florida statute is not divisible regarding the type of item possessed or concealed. In other words, the items are means of committing the offense rather than elements that a jury must specifically agree upon to convict. And this is so for three reasons. One, nothing in the text supports a conclusion that the items are elements. Two, the items are not punished any differently. And three, while the first two appear conclusive, Florida case law regarding double jeopardy also does not permit a court to prosecute a defendant, quote, for possessing several of those items at the same time, end quote. The 11th Circuit held that the BIA, quote, having failed to identify the relevant Florida court decisions, incorrectly considered the jury instructions for section 790.23 parents 1 parents A, end quote. Or put another way, it seems like the jury instructions indicate that the item possessed or concealed is an element. 
But that doesn't matter because according to the 11th Circuit, state case law trumps jury instructions. In any event, the 11th Circuit also held that the BAA misread the jury instructions. To summarize, Mr. Simpson's Florida statute of conviction criminalizes possession or concealment of more items than 18 U.S.C. Section 921A, the federal statute expressly referenced at INA Section 237A2C. In other words, the state statute of conviction is broader than the federal offense, and the Florida statute also isn't divisible as to the item possessed, and so the Florida crime isn't a match to INA Section 237A2C. Mr. Simpson, therefore, is not removable. Hope you got all that. Two more less heady things. Here's a quote from the decision. The 11th Circuit states, after going through all the various ways to determine divisibility of a statute, that, quote, if these sources do not speak plainly, a court must resolve the inquiry in favor of indivisibility, end quote. This appears to be the case regardless of the burdens and notwithstanding Pareto v. Wilkinson. That is, this quote supports the argument that if a court cannot make the legal conclusion of whether a statute is divisible, it must find the statute indivisible, regardless of whether the inquiry occurs at the relief or the removability stage. Also worth noting quickly is the fact that Mr. Simpson made an NTA-based jurisdictional claim because his NTA was deficient. It might be nothing, but in a footnote, the 11th Circuit did say that it had, quote, no occasion in this case to address what effect, if any, the Supreme Court's recent decision in Niz Chavez might have on Perez Sanchez, end quote. The later of which is the 11th Circuit's pre-Niz Chavez decision finding that NTAs are non-jurisdictional, but instead implicate claims processing rules. And as Kevin mentioned a few episodes ago, the BIA itself has requested amicus briefing on a similar issue. With all that uncertainty going on, it seems worth at least arguing that proceedings initiated through deficient NTAs should now be dismissed following Niz Chavez, if only to not waive that issue. And that is Simpson v. U.S. Attorney General. Next up, Maya v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 2nd, 2021. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude, or CIMTs, and it's a long one, so buckle up. Mr. Maye is from the Marshall Islands and entered Hawaii with his family as a child in 1989. Both then and now, birth in the Marshall Islands did not automatically confer citizenship, but there is a Compact of Free Association, which allows citizens of the Marshall Islands to come to the United States to live, work, and go to school without a visa. Due to that compact, it appears that Mr. Maye never applied to adjust his status, and he certainly never applied to naturalize. In 2017, and then again in 2018, he pled no contest to fourth-degree theft, a petty misdemeanor involving property valued at less than $250, in violation of Hawaii Revised Statute Section 708-833, parens 1. Because he's technically been admitted to the United States, Mr. Maye is only removable under INA Section 237. But... INA Section 237A2AII makes removable non-citizens convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct. So, if the Hawaii theft statute is a CIMT, well, Mr. Maya is in trouble. And after Mr. Maya appeared in removal proceedings pro se, an IJ and then the BIA held that it was a CIMT. In holding this, the BIA relied on its sea change CIMT 2016 decision in matter of Diaz-Lazaraga. Then, it appears that UC Hastings College of Law picked up the case on petition for review, and in this decision, the Ninth Circuit reversed and remanded to the BIA. But first, as so often occurs, 
the Ninth Circuit addressed a procedural hurdle. Oyl argued that Mr. Maye, pro se, had not sufficiently exhausted the arguments he made on petition for review in his filing, again pro se, with the BIA. The Ninth Circuit held, however, that the issue was exhausted because the BIA itself conducted the CIMT analysis, regardless of what Mr. Maye, pro se, had argued. The Ninth Circuit also held that although Mr. Maye initially conceded before the IJ the incredibly complicated legal issue, pro se, those concessions don't govern because the IJ appropriately did not rely on the concessions after recognizing that Mr. Maye, quote, did not at all understand the legal concepts underlying removal, end quote, and the IJ analyzed the statute to determine if it indeed was a CIMT. Then on to the merits. In the Ninth Circuit, a CIMT is, quote, generally a crime that one, is vile, base, or depraved, and two, violates accepted moral standards, end quote. With theft crimes, decades of prior BIA precedent established that to constitute a CIMT, the state theft offense must require, as an element, quote, intent to permanently deprive an owner of property, end quote. So, for example, a crime that criminalized, say, taking a car and joyriding wouldn't cut it because joyriding, by definition, does not involve a permanent taking or any such intent. But in matter of Diaz-Lazaraga, the BIA changed that definition, broadening the CIMT theft definition to that used in the Model Penal Code's definition of deprive to include state statutes that allow for conviction where the defendant merely has the intent to, quote, substantially erode the property rights of another, end quote. Under that definition, joyriding may cut it. Following matter of Diaz-Lazaraga, all circuits to address the issue held that the new definition can only apply to convictions obtained after the new definition went into effect in 2016. But, at least to Kevin's recollection, no circuit actually held that the BIA's new definition warranted Chevron deference but many implied as much. Here, the Ninth Circuit again declined to determine whether Diaz-Lazaraga's definition is appropriate, because it held that, even under the new definition, Hawaii Revised Statute Section 708-833 Parens 1 doesn't meet it. See, all of Hawaii's theft offenses, including theft in the fourth degree, incorporate Hawaii's definition of theft at Section 708-830, which in turn lists eight separate ways of committing theft. Five of those ways expressly require an intent to defraud, while three do not. And the BIA held, in Mr. Maye's case, that because those other three ways adopted the Model Penal Code's definition of intent to deprive, the statute sufficiently matched the new CIMT definition, like in Diaz-Lazaraga. But, as the Ninth Circuit held, it did not. Case law and jury instructions indicate that at least one way of committing theft, specifically theft by intentional failure to make required disposition of funds under Section 708-830 per N6, can be committed without any intent to defraud or deprive as understood by the Model Penal Code. While the crime may, and it is a bit unclear, but it may require a showing of intent to deprive, it does not follow that the intent to deprive is permanently or substantial erosion of property rights, as the Model Penal Code and Diaz-Lazaraga require. And indeed, the model penal code drafters themselves decided not to include as theft crimes acts such as failures to pay for services rendered or to pay an employee, reasoning that the definition, quote, must not be construed so broadly that a bright line between theft and breach of contract is obscured, end quote. Because section 708-830 paren 6 criminalizes similar offenses, there's strong support that the crime doesn't match the model penal code definition of deprive, and so it doesn't match Diaz-Lazaraga's new definition of a CIMT. <sighs> Gotta love that categorical approach. 
So all of this means that the Hawaii fourth degree theft statute is broader than the federal definition of a CIMT. And so Mr. Maya's convictions can't be CIMTs unless Hawaii theft is divisible via those eight ways of committing theft and the permissible records show that Mr. Maya committed one of those eight ways. Lucky for Mr. Maya, the statute is not divisible. As the Ninth Circuit noted, quote, the divisibility analysis here is straightforward because Hawaii's legislature explicitly directed that a jury need not decide which subsection of section 708-830 is violated to sustain a conviction for fourth degree theft, end quote. And Hawaii case law makes this clear as well. As a result, the Ninth Circuit remanded the case, seemingly for dismissal. A big congratulations to law students, Anna Lovelace-Owen and Olivia Medina, as well as a variety of attorneys from the UC Hastings College of Law Appellate Project. And a few quick notes from Kevin. Heads up to Hawaii practitioners. If you, like Mr. Mai, ever run into unfavorable language from, quote, Hawaii's legislative commentary, end quote, during your categorical analysis, remember, quote, the commentary is prepared by the Judicial Council of Hawaii, not Hawaii's legislature, and the legislature explicitly limited the commentary's persuasive power, end quote. So, like here, it is far from binding. Finally, Judge Burson concurred to state, as Kevin believes she has in every CIMT decision she's been on over the last year, and maybe even since Sessions v. DeMaia, that she believes the whole concept of a CIMT unconstitutionally vague urging the Ninth Circuit to go en banc on the issue. Lest we smirk at Judge Burson's persistent concurrences and dissents, look no further than the late, great Justice Ginsburg's wisdom that, quote, dissents speak to a future age, but the greatest dissents do become court opinions, and gradually, over time, their views become the dominant view, end quote. And that, my friends, is another crimmigration win for the non-citizen this week in Maya v. Garland. Now, on to our last purely crimmigration case for this week, in Gilbertson v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 2nd, 2021. This case is about particularly serious crimes. Miss Gilbertson was brought to the United States unlawfully from Mexico at 13 years old in 1992. She then became a lawful permanent resident in 2016 under the Violence Against Women Act, better known as VAWA. While the decision does not say this, it may be the case that Ms. Gilbertson adjusted her status under the VAWA due to the abuse she suffered during her relationship with a drug dealer named El Chino, who got her addicted to meth and heroin. During this relationship, she too became involved in the drug deals, through which she met a man named Archie, who was part of the very dangerous Mexican Zetas cartel. As if that weren't bad enough, things got very bad for Miss Gilbertson in 2017, when she agreed to transport $50,000 worth of meth in a car for El Chino. Unfortunately, and unknown to Miss Gilbertson, it turns out that car was stolen. Police stopped Miss Gilbertson, arrested her, and seized the meth. To add to all this, two males then attacked Miss Gilbertson's home shortly thereafter, and Archie, the member of the Zetas cartel, began making threatening phone calls to Gilbertson and sending her videos of masked Los Zetas members carrying out executions. So yeah, you can say things were very bad, but it gets worse. In 2018, police searched Miss Gilbertson's house and discovered drugs and weapons. Miss Gilbertson pled guilty to selling controlled substances, which is a felony in Minnesota under Minnesota Statute Section 152.023, Subdivision 1, Parens 1. She was sentenced to 21 months of imprisonment. DHS then initiated removal proceedings to take away Miss Gilbertson's green card, 
and she conceded that the Minnesota conviction was an aggravated felony, likely a drug trafficking offense under INA Section 101A43C, making her ineligible for asylum. However, while aggravated felonies are per se particularly serious crimes that bar non-citizens from asylum, only an aggravated felony or multiple aggravated felonies that have resulted in the non-citizen being sentenced to a term of imprisonment of at least five years will trigger a per se bar from withholding of removal relief. Here, Ms. Gilbertson was sentenced to imprisonment of only 21 months, so the conviction isn't a per se bar to withholding of removal. Despite that, IJs do still have the discretion to find that a conviction is particularly serious under immigration law, even if the conviction doesn't qualify as a statutory per se bar. And unfortunately for Ms. Gilbertson, that's what the IJ did here, and the BIA affirmed, as did the Eighth Circuit. Ms. Gilbertson primarily argued that the IJ should have considered her mental health in the particularly serious crime analysis, which included, quote, diagnoses of bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, borderline multiple personality disorder, impulse control problems, and repeated attempts to end her own life, end quote. But the IJ excluded that mental health evidence from the particularly serious crime analysis, relying on the BIA's decision in matter of GGS, despite the fact that, as Kevin has often repeated on the podcast, the Ninth Circuit vacated matter of GGS on direct appeal. And in fact, after the BIA's decision in Ms. Gilbertson's case, the Eighth Circuit decided Shazi v. Wilkinson, which Kevin discussed on episode 42 of the podcast, wherein the Eighth Circuit held that matter of GGS was wrongly decided. In light of that, Ms. Gilbertson asked the Eighth Circuit to remand her case back to the BIA. But the Eighth Circuit declined to do so, because while the IJ did rely in part on matter of GGS in excluding the mental health evidence, the IJ, and by extension the BIA, actually primarily relied on Attorney General Ashcroft's decision way back when in matter of YL, in which Attorney General Ashcroft held that, quote, aggravated felonies involving unlawful trafficking in controlled substances presumptively constitute particularly serious crimes, end quote, except for in, quote, extraordinary and compelling circumstances, end quote. To get around matter of YL, a non-citizen must satisfy a six-part test, which, according to the Eighth Circuit, does not allow for consideration of mental health evidence. Rather, the YL analysis is all about the conviction itself and includes, for example, requirements that the conviction involved only, quote, a very small quantity of controlled substance and a very modest amount of money paid for the drugs. Neither requirement was met here. And so, while it appears the Eighth Circuit agrees that the IJ erred in relying on matter of GGS, the Eighth Circuit determined that the error was harmless. So, YL makes Ms. Gilbertson's conviction a particularly serious crime that bars her from obtaining withholding of removal, but that still leaves deferral under the Convention Against Torture. However, the Eighth Circuit affirmed denial of that too, essentially concluding that notwithstanding Archie's threats, Ms. Gilbertson hadn't shown that Los Cetas were interested in her, or that the Mexican government would acquiesce to any harm she would suffer from Los Cetas, as Cat requires. Rather, it was, to quote the death knell from another Bush-era Attorney General decision, matter of JFF, merely a, quote, hypothetical chain of events, end quote. Miss Gilbertson, therefore, did not succeed in her case and will be removed. That is Gilbertson v. Garland. And now we move on to a trio of cases that involve analyses of particular social groups. The first is Rosales Reyes v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 4th, 2021. This case is about asylum and related relief. Ms. Rosales Reyes is from Mexico and came to the United States border in 2015 with her two minor children seeking asylum. She and her children were paroled into the United States for removal proceedings, and at her merits hearing, the IJ deemed her credible. 
Miss Rosales Reyes testified that while living in El Llano del Ego, she and her one-year-old son were kidnapped for the purpose of being pressured to sell drugs for the Cartel Jalisco Nuevo Generación, or the cartel. I won't go into all the details of Miss Rosales Reyes's experience that the Eighth Circuit includes in its decision, but it truly sounds terrifying. While Miss Rosales Reyes testified that she threw out the drugs after being released by the cartel the next day, she didn't report the incident to the police because she believed that the police in her town were connected to and friends with leaders of the cartel. She then fled to the United States with her two children. Her parents, who were also fearful of staying in the area after their daughter's experience, relocated to another area of Mexico. After Miss Rosales Reyes fled to the United States, her uncle moved into her house in Mexico and was then shot and murdered shortly thereafter in that house. Miss Rosales Reyes sought asylum based on her membership in the proposed particular social group, quote, Mexican mothers who refused to work for the cartel, end quote. The IJ denied and the BIA affirmed, as did the Eighth Circuit. First, reviewing de novo whether the asserted particular social group satisfies asylum law's definition of a particular social group, the Eighth Circuit held that the particular social group was not sufficiently particular or socially distinct. That, according to the Eighth Circuit, was, quote, because the evidence demonstrated that the cartel victimizes any person who opposes it, and not that the cartel specifically targets Mexican mothers who oppose it, end quote. Understood. I'd be curious about what the Eighth Circuit would think about the particular social group individuals who refuse to work for the cartel. By the Eighth Circuit's own recognition, the cartel is a force in 21 of Mexico's 31 states, and that, quote, in the states where the cartel is present, violence is also present, end quote but it doesn't appear that that argument was made. Turning then to cat protection, the Eighth Circuit explained that an inability to safely relocate is a necessary initial showing that a cat applicant must make, and that Miss Rosales Reyes did not make that showing here. As Miss Rosales Reyes apparently stated in her own testimony, there are 10 states in Mexico free of the cartel's control, and her parents are currently living safely in one of them. So, while the Eighth Circuit expressly sympathized with Ms. Rosales Reyes's plight, it did not believe asylum, nor any other related relief and protection, was warranted. And that is Rosales Reyes v. Garland. Next up, Nalasco v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on August 2nd, 2021. This case is about persecution by MS-13 in El Salvador. Mr. Nolasco, who was brought to the United States unlawfully at five or six years old in 1998, made some mistakes as a teenager, like joining the international criminal gang MS-13 in 2006 while living in Virginia. After Mr. Nolasco was arrested in 2019, DHS placed him in removal proceedings and he conceded removability for having entered without inspection or admission as a young child under INA Section 212A6AI. He then sought asylum and related relief as a former gang member. In doing so, he testified that he left the gang in 2010, but that he still has gang tattoos in many places on his body, which he cannot fully cover by wearing long sleeves, and that readily identify him as MS-13 affiliated. He fears that these tattoos, in addition to ICE coordinating with the Salvadoran government on his removal, will allow authorities to readily identify him as a former MS-13 member, and therefore, he risks persecution and torture by both MS-13 in El Salvador and the Salvadoran government itself. Relying on matters MEVG and WGR, the IJ and the BIA both concluded that the two particular social groups Mr. Nolasco proposed, first, former MS-13 members, and second, former MS-13 members who left for moral reasons, were not cognizable under immigration law, and that separately, Mr. Nolasco didn't warrant cat protection. 
the Fourth Circuit affirmed, first determining that the record did not show that the first proposed particular social group, former MS-13 members, was a distinct group in El Salvador as asylum law requires. That is, that Salvadoran society views them as a group. True, as the IJ and the Fourth Circuit recognized, there are extensive rehab efforts in El Salvador for former MS-13 members, supporting a finding that the group is viewed as distinct. But it appears that the Fourth Circuit believes the IJ considered all the evidence presented in its totality, and that the IJ and the BIA's findings do not compel a contrary conclusion. Gotta love those standards of review. As to Mr. Nolasco's second proposed particular social group, quote, former MS-13 members who left for moral reasons, end quote, it seems that the Fourth Circuit didn't consider that proposed group meaningfully different than the first proposed group and applied the same analysis. Turning then to cat protection, which, remember, doesn't require a nexus to a protected ground like a particular social group, the Fourth Circuit affirmed the IJ's and the BIA's denials, relying heavily on the Department of State Country Conditions Report, which notes that Salvadoran officials, quote, investigate and prosecute corruption when it can, end quote. As such, the Fourth Circuit found that the record did not compel a conclusion that Salvadoran officials will target and torture Mr. Nolasco for being a former MS-13 member. Of course, a non-citizen can still be granted cat protection if the torture would not be at the government's hand, but only if the non-citizen can establish that the government will acquiesce or consent to torture by private actors, such as MS-13. According to the Fourth Circuit, where there is apparently a, quote, presumption that the agency considered that evidence to the extent it was relevant, end quote, Mr. Nolasco did not make this showing. And at the end of the day, the Fourth Circuit held that the IJ and the BIA weighed all the evidence and that their conclusion did not warrant reversal. Mr. Nolasco, therefore, will be removed to El Salvador. Two things of note. First, in a footnote, the Fourth Circuit noted that the IJ and BIA found the proposed particular social groups both insufficiently socially distinct and particular, but that after the Fourth Circuit's decision in Amaya v. Rosen, which Kevin discussed on episode 40 of the podcast, Oil didn't defend the particularity finding. Finally, the decision notes that one of Mr. Nolasco's most prominent gang tattoos, meant to symbolize the international criminal organization that has largely contributed to the chaos plaguing much of the Northern Triangle countries, is, quote, the 213 on his back representing Los Angeles, MS-13's founding location. And that is Nolasco v. Garland. Next up, Vasquez Rodriguez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 5th, 2021. This case is pretty loaded. It's got issue exhaustion and particular social groups related to gang membership, among other things. So let's get into it. Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez is from El Salvador and first entered the U.S. unlawfully back in 2004. He fled to the U.S. three times and was removed twice between 2004 and 2014, to escape the harassment, targeting, false criminal accusations and convictions, violence, and beatings he asserts he suffered by police officers and government officials in El Salvador. He states that the severe treatment by police in El Salvador was because, like Mr. Nolasco feared in the Fourth Circuit case we just discussed, Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez has several tattoos, and that the officers mistakenly believed him to be a gang member because of this. Unlike Mr. Nolasco, however, Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez asserts he was never a gang member. To make matters even worse, when Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez volunteered with his uncle's mayoral campaign in El Salvador, Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez stated he was targeted by the local incumbent mayor and police officers who were loyal to her, 
The treatment became so severe by 2013 that he went into hiding for a year before fleeing for the last time to the United States. After Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez pled guilty to misdemeanor domestic battery in California in 2018, his earlier order of removal was reinstated. He then applied for withholding of removal based on his political opinion or his imputed political opinion and protection under CAT. The IJ denied withholding because, according to the IJ, the persecution Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez suffered was not on account of any protected ground. Here, either his imputed or his real political opinion. And the IJ also denied CAT because he believed Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez could safely relocate to another part of El Salvador. The BIA affirmed. Now, the Ninth Circuit grappled with several issues in this case, starting with, in my opinion, the easiest first, whether substantial evidence supported the BIA's determination that Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez was not targeted because of his real or imputed political opinion. According to the Ninth Circuit, there was. This was based primarily on the finding that the BIA had enough evidence to properly conclude that Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez, quote, was targeted by the police because he was a suspected gang member, not because of his political or imputed political opinion, end quote. The Ninth Circuit upheld the BIA's finding that Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez was not persecuted on account of his political opinion or his imputed political opinion. The Ninth Circuit next grappled with what is, again in my opinion, the hardest issue in this case, whether Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez fully exhausted his administrative remedies as required under 8 U.S. Code Section 1252 D1. Let's take it back a little. In removal proceedings, Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez sought withholding of removal under the theory that he was targeted and persecuted on account of his political opinion or his imputed political opinion. That's it. He did not raise any other protected ground. In his petition for review, on the other hand, Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez raised an additional protected ground, that he was targeted and persecuted on account of his membership in the proposed particular social group, quote, persons erroneously believed to be gang members. In other words, his imputed gang membership. Now, it gets a little convoluted, but we can make it through this together. Under 8 U.S.C. section 1252 D1, a court can only review a final order of removal if the non-citizen, quote, has exhausted all administrative remedies available to the non-citizen as of right, end quote. In the Ninth Circuit and all other circuits, this provision doesn't just require that the non-citizen exhaust procedures for challenging an adverse decision. It also requires issue exhaustion, or, in other words, that the circuit court can only review the issues that the non-citizen properly raised before the agency, which Kevin has discussed on the podcast before. However, even though issue exhaustion is jurisdictional in the Ninth Circuit and several other circuits, those courts still recognize that, quote, it makes little sense to require litigants to present claims to adjudicators who are powerless to grant the relief requested, end quote. As such, those courts still permit some level of a futility exception to the issue exhaustion requirement. In the Ninth Circuit, this futility exception is governed by the court's 2004 decision, Sun v. Ashcroft, in which the court held that non-citizens need not exhaust issues in cases, quote, where resort to the agency would be futile, end quote. This is because, under the language of 8 U.S.C. section 1252 D1, a non-citizen is required to exhaust only those remedies, quote, available as of right, end quote. And, according to the Ninth Circuit, quote, to qualify as a remedy available as of right, a remedy must enable the agency to give unencumbered consideration to whether relief should be granted, end quote. As such, the futility exception in the Ninth Circuit is stated as the following, quote, where the agency's position on the question at issue appears already set, and it is very likely what the result of recourse to administrative remedies would be, such recourse would be futile and is not required, end quote. 
Did you get all that? Okay. So now in this case, the 11th Circuit determined that the futility exception was satisfied due to the BIA's 2008 decision in matter of EAG, in which the BIA rejected a proposed particular social group nearly identical to the one Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez proposed in his petition for review, young persons who are perceived to be affiliated with gangs. In EAG, the BIA relied heavily on the Ninth Circuit's decision in Artiega v. Mukasey, in which the court found that actual members of a gang could not constitute a particular social group because, according to the court, quote, treating affiliation with a criminal organization as being protected membership in a social group is inconsistent with the principles underlying the bars to asylum and withholding of removal based on criminal behavior, end quote. The BIA in EAG agreed with this justification and then applied it in the context of non-citizens who are only perceived to be members of gangs. According to the Ninth Circuit in Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez's case, it had not considered this issue of perceived gang membership or the validity of matter of EAG before now. So the BIA had been bound by its decision in EAG when deciding Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez's appeal. And because of that, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the BIA, quote, could not have given unencumbered consideration to Vasquez Rodriguez's argument that he is eligible for withholding of removal because he fears persecution on account of his imputed gang membership. While he could have urged the BIA to reconsider its position, quote, the existence of board precedent on the issue is sufficient to show that the agency's position was already set, and therefore, under the court's interpretation of Section 1252D1, he was not required to exhaust the issue, end quote. Now, finally, to the merits. Whether persons erroneously believed to be gang members constitute a particular social group. To this point, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the BIA's treatment of claims of persecution based on imputed gang membership is legally flawed and that matter of EAG is inconsistent with the proper analysis of proposed particular social groups. This was because the BIA and EAG relied primarily on the Ninth Circuit's decision in Artiega, but the consideration in that Ninth Circuit decision, which proposed a particular social group of actual gang membership, do not apply to persons such as Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez who are not actually members of a gang but who are only incorrectly perceived to be gang members. As a result, the Ninth Circuit found that the BAA and EAG simply rejected imputed gang membership as a particular social group, quote, solely because it had previously found a similar group in a different society to lack social distinction or particularity, end quote. Do take note, though, that the Ninth Circuit did not actually rule on whether imputed gang membership does constitute a particular social group. Indeed, the court explicitly stated that to do so, Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez would still have to demonstrate that the group's defining characteristic is immutable, that its members can be identified with particularity, and that the group is understood to be distinct within Salvadoran society. But because the BIA in this case had not yet had the opportunity to decide that issue, the Ninth Circuit remanded the case back to the BIA to do so. Phew, that was a doozy, but pretty interesting. Oh, but wait, we're not done. The Ninth Circuit then ended the decision by stating that remand would also allow the BIA to reconsider Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez's eligibility for protection under CAT, because the Ninth Circuit determined that the BIA's decision to deny him CAT protection was not supported by substantial evidence. Here, the board offered two reasons as to why Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez was ineligible for CAT. One, that, quote, his uncle, whose political campaign he supported, had not been harmed in El Salvador, end quote. And two, that he, quote, could relocate to another part of El Salvador, end quote. As to one, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the reason was contradicted by the BIA's own determination that Vasquez Rodriguez, quote, was targeted by the police because he was a suspected gang member and not because of his political or imputed political opinion, end quote. Thus, it was irrelevant that Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez's uncle can safely reside in El Salvador. 
As to two, the Ninth Circuit stated that the IJ's reasoning that Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez could, quote, speak Spanish and find work throughout El Salvador, end quote, said very little about how Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez might actually safely reside in the country. Indeed, you can speak the language and find work, but still remain unsafe. And even the country reports submitted by the government and relied upon by both the IJ and the BIA said only that, quote, reports of abuse and police misconduct were more often from residents of the metropolitan area, San Salvador, end quote. But according to the Ninth Circuit, quote, that is hardly an endorsement of the safety of other areas, end quote. And so the Ninth Circuit finally remands the case back to the BIA. A few quick minor things buried in this loaded case. First, the Ninth Circuit includes a brief discussion about whether issue exhaustion is properly considered a jurisdictional requirement. While it is in the Ninth Circuit, the court noted that in recent years, the Supreme Court has cautioned against, quote, profligate use, end quote, of the word jurisdiction, and has explained that, quote, when Congress does not rank a statutory limitation as jurisdictional, courts should treat the restriction as non-jurisdictional in character, end quote. Because 8 U.S.C. Section 1252 D.1 does not explicitly state that exhaustion of remedies is jurisdictional, some circuits, including the 2nd and the 7th, have explicitly held that it is not jurisdictional. Other circuits, including the 1st, the 3rd, and the 10th, have continued to adhere to circuit precedent by treating issue exhaustion as jurisdictional while still expressing doubts about the position. The 9th Circuit joined that second group in this decision. It'll be interesting to see how this issue develops. Second, it seems as though there is an underlying credibility issue in this case. As the Ninth Circuit states in its opinion, the IJ actually found Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez to be incredible. But the IJ also found that even if Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez was credible, he would be ineligible for withholding of removal and CAT. And then the BIA just expressly assumed that Mr. Vasquez Rodriguez was credible and analyzed the issue as if he was. Third, the Ninth Circuit explicitly notes that its standard for the futility exception is, quote, more generous, end quote, than the standard in other circuits. For example, in the Second Circuit, the mere, quote, likelihood of adherence to precedent, unquote, is not enough. Instead, only the, quote, factual impossibility of relief, end quote, is sufficient to meet the futility exception. Whereas in the Ninth Circuit, the standard is just that the BAA's result must be, quote, very likely, end quote. Interesting. And that behemoth is Vasquez Rodriguez v. Garland. Next up, Romero v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 2nd, 2021. This is a short but important case about standards and burdens of proof. Mr. Romero is from Guatemala, was admitted into the United States as a visitor in 2005, and overstayed the time authorized by his visa. But he married a U.S. citizen in 2007 and, because he was inspected and admitted into the U.S. initially, was eligible to adjust status based on his marriage. While USCIS approved the I-130 petition filed by his wife, it denied the I-485 adjustment of status application. This was because in his adjustment of status interview, Mr. Romero admitted that he used a false name to obtain a Nevada driver's license in 2013. That false name was a U.S. citizen. So according to USCIS, Mr. Romero made a false claim to U.S. citizenship to obtain a benefit under state law, a permanent and unwaivable inadmissibility bar to adjustment of status under INA Section 212A6CII. The consequences of such an inadmissibility finding really can't be overstated, which I'll get to a bit later. Anyway, with the adjustment of status application denied, DHS placed Mr. Romero into removal proceedings. In those proceedings, 
Mr. Romero conceded that he was removable for having overstayed his visa and renewed his adjustment of status application under INA Section 245A, essentially relitigating the whole false claim to citizenship issue before an IJ, as the law allows. Unfortunately for Mr. Romero, the IJ reached the same conclusion as USCIS, particularly because in addition to using the false name of a U.S. citizen to obtain the Nevada driver's license, Mr. Romero also presented a social security card and a report of birth abroad in Puerto Rico, which, if true, would make him a U.S. citizen because individuals born in Puerto Rico are U.S. citizens. Viewing all this evidence, the IJ held that Mr. Romero had not shown that he was, quote, clearly and beyond doubt, end quote, admissible to the United States, a standard that comes from 8 U.S.C. Section 1229 AC2A and the Ninth Circuit's 2013 decision in Lopez Vasquez v. Holder. But the Ninth Circuit in this case reversed. As it explained, the court in Lopez Vasquez was discussing the burden that applicants for admission into the U.S. must meet to establish that he or she is admissible. Under 8 U.S.C. Section 1229 AC2A, those non-citizens must show that they are, quote, clearly and beyond doubt, end quote, admissible, equating to a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But that standard only applies to non-citizens who are actually outside the U.S. trying to gain admission. With individuals like Mr. Romero, on the other hand, who have already lawfully entered the U.S., and sometimes even those who have not entered lawfully, and who are applying for immigration relief and removal proceedings, a different standard of proof applies. Under 8 CFR section 1240.8D, these non-citizens must simply establish that they warrant relief, quote, by a preponderance of evidence, end quote. And they only actually have this burden if the, quote, evidence indicates that one or more of the grounds of mandatory denial apply, end quote an objectively lower standard than what applicants for admission must meet. Accordingly, because the IJ and the BIA applied the incorrect legal standard, in other words, because they believed Mr. Romero needed to establish clearly and beyond doubt that he was admissible, rather than by a mere preponderance of evidence, the Ninth Circuit remanded the case. Congratulations to Luther Snavely of Riza Adhari and Associates for Petitioner. A few things to note. First, a few things to note from our leader, Kevin, before he departed. Kevin first notes that the confusion here, and it is very confusing, appears to come from the fact that sometimes, in some contexts, the BAA and circuits have treated adjustment of status as an admission for certain immigration purposes, notwithstanding the regulations seeming to counsel otherwise. Logically, then, someone applying for something that would constitute an admission would appear to be an applicant for admission but they are not, as the Ninth Circuit explains here, because notwithstanding any expansion of the concept of admission under case law, the phrase applicant for admission means a very specific thing, and it does not include individuals in the U.S. applying for adjustment of status. Makes your head spin if you're not careful. Kevin then notes that while the remand outcome is great, these may be rough facts for Mr. Romero on remand. It appears that Mr. Romero intends to argue that under matter of Richmond, the false claim to U.S. citizenship in Nevada was not material to the benefit he sought a driver's license. While the BIA deemed that argument waived the first time around, we'll see what happens now. But that is certainly an argument to make, and Matter of Richmond contains one of the narrow and few arguments available to rebut a charge of making a false claim to citizenship under INA Section 212A6CII, that the provision contains a materiality requirement. Except, of course, in the 11th Circuit, which disagreed with Matter of Richmond in a little-known case I'm sure has never been spoken about on the podcast before, Patel v. U.S. Attorney General. As Kevin has repeated on the podcast so often that I am about to print it on a shirt and sell it as podcast merchandise, stay tuned to see what happens with Patel in the Supreme Court next term. And lastly, I just wanted to touch on the extremely harsh consequences of being found inadmissible under INA Section 212A-6CII. 
While being found inadmissible under any provision is rough, being found under this specific provision for making a false claim to U.S. citizenship is a particularly big deal. So big, in fact, that many circuits, including the Seventh and the Eighth Circuits, have described it as, quote, the immigrant version of the death penalty, end quote. This is because inadmissibility under this provision cannot be waived and has virtually no exceptions available other than to a very small group of people. As a result, the provision essentially operates as a permanent bar to admission. Heavy stuff. And these harsh consequences are just one reason why the materiality requirement the BIA expressly recognized in Matter of Richmond is so important. If you want to learn more about this provision, including the harsh consequences that follow it, and arguments as to why there is an inherent materiality requirement in the provision, go check out the article published in the July 2021 issue of the University of Miami Law Review, written by yours truly and Ed Ramos, another wonderful partner in our KKTP family, who appeared on the podcast back in January. And that is Romero v. Garland. Now for the last case, Parada Oriana v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on August 6, 2021. This is a short case that involves motions to reopen, the hardship analysis and cancellation of removal, and the always mystifying jurisdiction stripping provision of 8 U.S.C. section 1252A2BI. Miss Parada Oriana is from El Salvador, and she was apprehended and detained by agents when she entered the United States in 2005. While in detention, Ms. Parada Oriana was served with an NTA that ordered her to appear before an IJ in Harlingen, Texas, quote, at a date and time to be set, end quote. I think you can see where this might be going. While ICE agents asked Ms. Parada Oriana for an address where she would be living, all that she could tell them was that she would be living with her uncle in Houston. The agents released her, but allegedly advised her that she needed to update her address with the immigration court once she had a steady address. We then skip ahead to March 2006 when the IJ in Harlingen, Texas, called Ms. Parada Oriana's name at a master calendar hearing, but she was not present. So the IJ ordered Ms. Parada Oriana removed in absentia. In doing so, the IJ noted that Ms. Parada Oriana was advised that she was required under 8 U.S.C. section 1229A1F to provide the court with her address, which she did not do, and because of this, the court was not required to provide her with written notice of her hearing under 8 U.S.C. section 1229A-B5B. Skip ahead now to 2010, when ICE detained Ms. Parada Oriana in Maryland. According to Ms. Parada Oriana, this is the first time she became aware that the IJ had entered an in absentia removal order against her. She was released from detention and remained in the United States. Skipping ahead to 2017, USCIS then approved an I-130 petition that Ms. Parada Oriana's U.S. citizen husband filed on her behalf. She then filed with the immigration court an opposed motion to reopen in 2018, in which she sought to either rescind her in absentia order or, in the alternative, reopen her removal proceeding sua sponte to allow her to apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. She simultaneously submitted an application for non-LPR cancellation, in which she alleged that her U.S. citizen husband would suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship without her support due to his health conditions. The IJ first denied Ms. Parada Oriana's request to rescind the in absentia order because, according to the IJ, Ms. Parada Oriana had been personally served with the NTA back in 2005 that expressly warned her of the requirement to keep her address updated with the court and had thus forfeited her right to receive notice of the hearing. The IJ then did find that Parada Oriana warranted equitable tolling of the deadline for filing the motion to reopen to apply for non-LPR cancellation due to the Supreme Court's decision in Pereira v. Sessions in 2018. Despite this, the IJ still denied the motion to reopen. Now remember, the BIA may deny a motion to reopen on one of three grounds. One, 
failure to establish a prima facie case for the underlying relief sought, two, failure to introduce previously unavailable material evidence, or three, failure to establish entitlement to discretionary relief. This case implicates the first ground, failure to establish prima facie case for underlying relief. And the IJ concluded that Ms. Parada Oriana did indeed fail to make that showing, specifically that she did not show her husband would experience exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And the BIA affirmed all the IJ's findings. In her petition for review to the Fifth Circuit, Ms. Parada Oriana argued two main issues. One, that the BIA erred by failing to apply and follow its own standard for evaluating prima facie evidence of eligibility for relief in the context of a motion to reopen. And two, that the BIA erred in concluding that she had not presented evidence of prima facie eligibility for cancellation of removal because she did not show that her husband would experience the requisite hardship in the event of her removal. The Fifth Circuit disagreed with Ms. Parada Oriana on both issues. First, the Fifth Circuit did state that the question of whether the BIA applied the correct legal standard to her motion to reopen was a question of law, and as such, it retained jurisdiction to review that question. Under the BIA's 1996 decision, Matter of LOG, the standard for determining whether a non-citizen has a prima facie case for eligibility for relief is whether there is a, quote, reasonable likelihood that relief will be granted in the exercise of discretion, end quote. Ms. Parada Oriana asserted that instead of applying that standard, the BIA and the IJ essentially held her to a much higher standard. But the Fifth Circuit disagreed, concluding that Ms. Parada Oriana pointed to no actual evidence that the BIA or the IJ applied the wrong standard. Indeed, the IJ herself stated in her order that Ms. Parada Oriana, quote, had not shown that there is a reasonable likelihood that she could demonstrate that her removal to El Salvador would result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to her husband, end quote and the BIA merely agreed with the IJ's analysis and affirmed the decision. Thus, because the BIA's failure to expressly state the standard of review in its opinion does not alone make its ruling incorrect, the Fifth Circuit did not disturb it. As to the second issue, Ms. Parada Oriana asserted that the BIA abused its discretion in finding that she had not presented prima facie evidence of eligibility for non-LPR cancellation. The Fifth Circuit agreed with the government that it did not have jurisdiction to review the BIA's prima facie hardship determination under 8 U.S.C. section 1252A2BI, yes, the very same provision that the Supreme Court will grapple with in Patel next term. This is because, according to this Fifth Circuit panel, the Fifth Circuit has routinely held that it is barred from reviewing either the BIA's initial denials of cancellation of removal or any subsequent denials of motions to reopen the same. Ms. Parada Oriana tried to argue that this was not the case here. However, according to this Fifth Circuit panel, Ms. Parada Oriana's motion to reopen falls firmly within a form of discretionary relief listed in Section 1252A2BI, that is, cancellation of removal. This Fifth Circuit panel then agreed with the government's position in this case that, quote, the only way to evaluate whether Parada Oriana's evidence demonstrated a reasonable likelihood that she could show the necessary hardship in a reopened hearing would be to evaluate the factual circumstances and determine whether those facts, when fully developed at a hearing, might rise to the hardship standard, end quote. According to the government in this case, in this Fifth Circuit panel, quote, this discretionary determination of whether a given set of facts rises to the hardship standard is precisely the determination Congress left in the agency's hands, end quote. Therefore, the Fifth Circuit dismissed the petition for lack of jurisdiction under 8 U.S.C. section 1252A2BI. This is a wild case, in my opinion, especially in light of the Fifth Circuit's decision in Trejo v. Garland just last month, which was discussed on episode 63 of the podcast. A few things to note. In Trejo v. Garland, 
a completely different Fifth Circuit panel explicitly held that 8 U.S.C. Section 1252 A2BI deprives the court of jurisdiction to review only the, quote, discretionary decision of whether to actually grant cancellation of removal, and that, quote, the Supreme Court precedent makes clear that applying a legal standard to established facts in order to determine whether a non-citizen is eligible for discretionary relief is a question of law, not a discretionary decision, end quote. And that Fifth Circuit panel held it did have jurisdiction to review the IJ's determination that the non-citizen failed to establish the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard. Because according to that Fifth Circuit panel, it was a mixed question of law and fact, or the application of a legal standard to established facts. In doing so, that Fifth Circuit panel recognized that 8 U.S.C. Section 1252A2BI does not, quote, sweep so broadly, quote, as to bar review of such issues. Now, how does that decision square with Ms. Parada Oriana's case? Did the panel here completely retcon that decision? As it seems as though the panel applied Section 1252A2BI in the broad sweeping manner that Trejo expressly rejected. Or is there something in Ms. Parada Oriana's case that distinguishes it from Trejo? Is the court confused? Are you confused? I know I am. The Supreme Court's review of 8 U.S.C. Section 1252A2BI's scope in Patel is proving more and more necessary. Another quick note before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your week. This Fifth Circuit panel states in its decision, quote, Section 1252A2BI precludes judicial review of any judgment regarding the grant or denial of cancellation of removal, end quote. However, that's not technically correct. The exact language of Section 1252A2BI states that, quote, no court shall have jurisdiction to review any judgment regarding the granting of relief, end quote, under five enumerated forms of discretionary relief. It might be a nitpicky point, but the courts must presume that Congress meant what it said when they drafted the statute, and the language very clearly here does not include judgments regarding denial of relief. And this Fifth Circuit panel also sometimes completely took out the regarding the granting of relief language when it discussed 8 U.S.C. Section 1252A2BI, paraphrasing that that provision merely, quote, precludes judicial review of any judgment regarding cancellation of removal, end quote. But again, that is not technically correct. And by taking out the phrase, quote, regarding granting of relief, end quote, it could be argued that this panel treated the language as superfluous, a big no-no in the statutory construction and interpretation world. Just some food for thought to hold you over until next week. And that is Parada Oriana v. Garland. And that's it for this week, folks. Thank you again to Kevin for letting me take over the pod for the next three weeks while he's on a well-deserved and much-anticipated vacation. We will all miss you but are so, so happy for you. And thanks to you, dear listeners, for coming on this beautiful journey of learning and nerding out with me over the next three weeks. See you in the next one. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. 
And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.